Ramble. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Bada bing, bada boom. Welcome to this week's mini-sode of Rotten Mango. I'm your host, Stephanie Sue, And his parents just didn't understand. You know, they didn't get it. They kept telling him, your boss isn't that strange. Maybe he's just a bit eccentric. You know, it, yeah, that's the word to describe him. But in the end, think about it, Edward. It's about you. It's about your future. And this guy's a great mentor. He can teach you valuable skills that you need in order to succeed. And I know you might think that he's not all right in the head, but maybe he's just a bit socially awkward. He's an entrepreneur after all, right? So you hang in there, Edward, and you keep going on, okay? We're proud of you. So Edward stuck to it. He stayed at his job with his weird boss and his strange co-workers. I mean, I guess he could try to see them as a family of sorts. They did do a lot of team-building exercises. You know, the, the companies that take you bowling. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes they'll go on these company retreats to build morale, to build a company culture where everyone gets along and gets on board with the company mission. Well, yeah, Edward's boss did something like that, but it wasn't that fancy. It was just always in his attic, the boss's attic in his family home. They would stand around. It was just the four of them, the (laughs) boss and three employees. They would stand around and start chanting some weird things. The boss thought it was, you know, to build the hype. The four of them would stand, chant, 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 and in the dim glow of the attic, with the candles flickering, the inverted crosses staring at them from the walls. Robin, the boss would hold up the sacrifice in the air and dramatically bring it down in front of his face and take a bite. He would chomp down, chew, and then he would smile, his teeth covered in red. Then he would pass it to his other employee, then another, and they all took turns taking bites and consuming the piece of human flesh. It was always an amputated breast. Oh my god. Robin felt like it was their work tradition, their team bonding moments, and really to seal the deal, he would have the four of them standing in a circle to masturbate now onto the severed half-eaten breast. Robin had no care in the world. He had no care about the women that he ripped the breast from while they were still alive. As always, full show notes are available at RottenMingoPodcast.com, but there's a lot of show notes in there, a lot of court files, documentaries, articles. I mean, this is a notorious case that has been heavily requested, so I'm just going to jump right in. The doctors and nurses, they were staring at her in awe. I mean, it didn't make sense. They were shocked that she was even alive, they were shocked that she was conscious, and they were in awe that she survived this whole ordeal. And now the story that she's telling them, there's just no way. There's no way this is true. It must be the shock, right? I mean, even if you were to write a villain in a horror movie, this would be so far-fetched, people would say, this is unrealistic. Nobody's actually this evil. There's no way, right? Angel sat there in the emergency room, and she was holding onto her breast. Her breast had been amputated and was taped back on by duct tape. So tell us what happened. Angel York was a sex worker. She was working when this old red van came up and asked her, you know, how much for her services. She thought it was another client. She got into the back 
And immediately when the door clicked shut, she knew it was going to be a really, really bad night. There were multiple men. They handcuff her. And for hours, they rape her, torture her, cut her all over her body with a knife. And in the end, the leader of the group looked at her and said, Angel, I'm going to let you live if you do something for me first. What? Cut off your own breast. Angel had already lived through hours of torture. I mean, she knew that these men were fully capable of killing her and torturing her more. I mean, sure, Angel's not dumb. He could have easily been bluffing that he wasn't going to actually let her live. But what if there was that small, tiny little chance that he's not bluffing? Shouldn't she take it? Because what's the other option here? What's the alternative? Refuse to do it and piss them off more and die anyway? She had to try. So she took the knife, her hand shaking, she held her breath, she tried to shut her brain off, and she forced herself to press down, cutting into her own flesh. Oh my God. Blood started flowing all around her, and that got the guy off. He got so worked up, he went into this frenzy. He grabbed the knife from Angel and quickly slashed Angel's breast off. He amputated it, masturbated into her open wound, and then put the amputated breast back on with duct tape. He duct taped it back to her body. After he masturbated into her open wound, then they would dump her body in the alleyway, thinking that she would die from her wounds, but she was alive. And a few minutes later, passerby spotted Angel and rushed her to the hospital. I mean, when Angel brought this information to the police, they sat there listening to her story. And they're shocked. How, what, I mean, what kind of crime even is this? How on earth did she even survive? And another question that doctors and police alike had was, what kind of trauma is Angel going to bear for the rest of her life? This is not, I don't want to say normal trauma because there is no such thing as normal trauma, but this is such a unique circumstance of trauma that how do you, how do you live after witnessing this level of cruel torture onto yourself? The police had also been looking for a serial killer in the Chicago area that had been amputating the breast off their victims. It wasn't until Angel that they realized that they weren't looking for one serial killer. They were looking for four. Four serial killers that worked together, operated together in a group. They would be called the Chicago Ripper Crew. You know it's a bad start to the case when it starts with John Wayne Gacy. Yeah, the clown serial killer, aka the killer clown. The one that we covered as far back as episode 6. It has been over two years since we talked about John Wayne Gacy, and he's pertinent to the story, so we've got to dig up those old memories of that episode. I do need to refresh your memory on the clown killer. So he is one of the most notorious serial killers in the U.S. He's this evil, vile man who was responsible for the deaths of at least 33 people. 26 of them were buried underneath his house. Like this guy had a whole family. So bear with me because it's all going to come together. Remember our Johnny boy? You know, classic daddy issues. Yeah, that's the guy. John Wayne Gacy had a rough childhood. He's upset. His abusive alcoholic father beat him for not being manly enough. Even when he was young, John was hospitalized with an undiagnosed heart condition. And his dad pretty much told him, yeah, well, grow a pair, okay? We know you're faking it for attention. It was a recipe for a disaster. It was an environment that breeds killers. So by the time that John is just seven years old, what does he do? He goes out and molests a young girl. Obviously, the consequences were unfair. She got a lifetime of trauma and John Wayne Gacy got a good old-fashioned beating. 
The same year, John was molested by a family friend. And I think what's interesting about John Wayne Gacy is that he tends to have this Ted Bundy effect on people um, in the sense that, you know, he really doesn't strike you as a serial killer. He's not foaming at the mouth and has this crazed look in his eyes. He's actually really normal, successful in some people's eyes. He was politically involved in the Democratic Party. He met the first lady of the United States at one point, volunteered for local community events. He owned three KFC restaurants during his career before he opened up a contracting business. I mean, you would really consider this guy a normal, upstanding family man, local community member, you know, that is, if you didn't know that he was kidnapping, torturing, raping, and killing young teenage boys. He would burn his victims, assault them with foreign objects. Sometimes it was more mental than anything. He would make them pretend to be horses on all fours. And then he would ride on their backs. He would drown them, bring them back to life, drown them again, bring them back to life. Sometimes he would lure his victims in by promising them a job at his contracting company, PDM Contractors, Painting, Decorating, and Maintenance Contractors. Now, this is where our story starts today. Here's the crazy part. One of John's employees oh was a God. young man named Robin Gett. And he, too, would become a ruthless, sadistic serial killer that would terrorize Chicago. What are the odds? Two serial killers in one workplace? It's terrifying to think about it. Imagine if you used to work for PDM contractors or, God forbid, you tried to hire them. If you've ever been in the same room as John and Robin at the same time, I mean, that's terrifying. Not knowing how dangerous these two are, you would never even realize how close to death you might have been in that very moment just by being in that room. There are speculations and rumors that John and Robin may have killed together, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Because as of right now in the timeline, Robin hadn't killed yet. Not quite yet. He was a serial killer in the making, if you will. And a few things about Robin. Well, the very pertinent ones. There were rumors that Robin had sex with his wife's dog and forced his wife to watch. And he really loved acupuncture. He loved the act of sticking needles into the human body to release stress and tension. It was a favorite pastime of Robin's. It, it provides a sense of inner healing, right? A way to relax. There were a few conditions though. One, he wanted the needles to be inserted during sex. Two, he never wanted the needles inside of him. The needles would be inserted into his wife, of course. And three, he wanted his wife to feel the pain of the needles for as long as possible. So he wanted to stick the needles through her nipples during sex and requested that she kept the needles in her breast all day long. He was so into this little acupuncture kink, if you will, that it got to the point where his wife was suffering. She was getting infections from these needles being in her breast all the time, but he didn't care. He just casually told her, well, that's what antibiotics are for. You should just take some antibiotics and don't complain. Because the thought of you in pain, like, gets me going. So do you want this relationship to work or not? He was really into acupuncture. And he really loved his goddamn attic. It was his man cave. A place where he felt free to do whatever he wanted. Like read books on Satanism. Oh yeah, we're there again. Satanism. Robin was labeled as a Satanist after this case was exposed and a lot of people had satanic panic over this. And just to reiterate, Satanism does not partake in murder, sexual assault, or really any crime. They're straight up against it. But Robin didn't care. He knew that Satanism had the word Satan in it. And that was good enough for him. That, that was edgy, dangerous, dark. 
So the guy gets to work. He's sitting there, Home Depot painting inverted crosses on every little surface of his little man cave attic. He would spend all night away from his wife and kids, because he has kids, reading about anything related to sacrifices, torture, human mutilation. That was his jam. That and anything to do with power. Just the balance of power, dominance, control. I mean, he was captivated. Why do some people have power? and others don't. His favorite writings, his favorite idea really, was the idea that he could cut off a woman's breast and use it as like a little pouch, a little travel pouch. You know, fill it with his tobacco seeds, leaves, or whatever. Yeah, a boob bag. Which honestly, it sounds like something that you would read in a fictional horror book, right? But it did happen. It's a piece of US history that I, for one, was not taught in school. The Sand Creek Massacre of 1864, troops slaughtered countless indigenous people in Colorado. The indigenous people were unarmed, gathered under a flag of peace, but the colonizers came in and slaughtered them all anyway. Men, women, children mutilated their corpses and kept the victims' genitals to either use as tobacco pouches or to wear on their hats. So that's where Robin was getting his idea. He was inspired by the colonizers. I mean, the idea was just turning him on. Using breast, mutilated human genitals as pouches, it's taboo, it's disgusting, and it's keeping him up at night. He felt like he hasn't really lived until he experienced his, his dream, you know? And you know what? If you asked Robin about it, he might even get defensive. Because he had this to say about his fascination with breast. I mean, it ran in my entire family. It wasn't just me. It went as far back as my great-grandfather. Each of us men in the family have married large-breasted women. I mean, my ex-wife was a 39D, and yeah, it was satisfying. So, there you have it. Robin thinks it's fine to justify his fascination for boob and boob pouches because it runs in the family. His wife did notice her husband's fixation on breasts anytime that they had sex, but she chalked it up to him being like a boob guy, you know? Just like boobs, nothing, it's completely normal. Till one day, Robin sat her down with a very special request. Do you mind, while we have sex, if I stick your breasts with, you know, pins, like through the needles, you know, through the boob and through the nipples? Okay, um, Robin's wife tried to be accommodating. She's, she's reasoning with herself. Okay, at least he still wants to have sex, right? At least he's not cheating. He's just kinky and he's just trying to spice up our love life, which honestly could, is a lot to say. You know, other husbands, they might not even care. But the pain was a lot. And the fact that he wanted her to wear the pins in her breast all day long, they ached, they were getting infected. And one time during sex, Robin pulled out a knife and cut a one inch deep wound straight into her breast. She hated every second of it. She was just going along with it to keep her husband happy. But Robin was the type that would never be happy. He always needed more. Now, there is not much that I could dig up on this guy's childhood. But I mean, from all accounts, it wasn't pleasant. It wasn't a good one. It just seemed like Robin had a hard time getting along with his family, especially his mom. It got so bad that his parents decided to ship him off to a school for troubled kids. They were hoping they were, you know, crossing their fingers, praying. Something's got to give. Something's going to change. Robin's going to come back a new kid. Of course he didn't. He comes back home and shortly afterwards, he's kicked out of the family house. Now, this part is alleged, but it's alleged that Robin had molested his own sister. And that is why his parents kicked him out of the house so swiftly after he came back. That was the whisper around town. So now, the kid is forbidden from his family home. He needs to make money. Dropped out of high school at 16 years old, starts working in the construction business. 
That's how he ends up working for the killer clown, John Wayne Gacy. Few years after that, I mean, things are going well. Robin married Rosemary, freshly 18 years old. And it feels like this could be the end of one of those coming of age movies. They buy a house in a nice quiet area. Three kids together. They get along with their neighbors, have these cute little barbecue parties with them. Someone roll the credits. This should be the end, right? That's what it's supposed to be. But let's ask the neighbors first, because sometimes neighbors know more about a family than the family themselves. They're observant. They watch with third-party eyes. They have no bias. They're just on the side, analyzing. And it's fascinating because when you think about it, every person in your life, every neighbor in your life has a uniquely different perspective of you from everyone else. So you could ask 100 people what they think of you and each one will vary slightly from the others. Same with Robin's neighbors. One neighbor said, oh, you know, nice guy, normal guy, just pleasant, helpful. His kids were playful. They got along with all the other kids in the neighborhood. Robin was always out doing, you know, the husband things. He'd mow the lawn, paint the house, you know, that stuff. Sometimes he did play some obnoxiously loud music, but other than that, you know, pretty good neighbor, friendly, good guy. Another one thought that Robin was more of a hero. Oh, I remember one time a fight broke out on the street, like they were about to throw hands and punches and, uh, you know, Robin ran out of his house with his shotgun in his hands and he broke up the fight. Kind of a hero move, if you ask me. Which side note, I don't know about you, but if someone ran out of their house with a shotgun to break up a fight or for whatever reason, like a tussle between two people, I would still think that that person is a little unhinged as well. But maybe that's just me. <laughs> maybe I have no idea. Street fight, shotgun, neighborly etiquette. Other neighbors said... Oh yeah, it's definitely something wrong with that guy. I tell you what, I, my family and I, we always kept our distance. His wife and kids were fine. They were nice. We never noticed any abuse between any of them. We didn't think that he was abusing the kids or anything like that, but something was just off about the dude. I can't tell you what, but something was off. Robin's relationship with his wife wasn't perfect either. It, things started to get rocky. Rosemary starts complaining to her friends that, you know, Robin's not treating me well. I, I want to leave, but I'm stressed. I, I don't want the stigma of being this divorced woman and the pressure of raising three kids all by myself. <sighs> it's hard. And, you know, I tried to bring up divorce. I worked up the courage and I finally sat him down and I said, we need to get a divorce. And he flat out shut me down. The next time Rosemary came to her friends, she said that he convinced her that she was making the world's biggest mistake. Sometimes Robin would straight up intimidate her into staying. So Rosemary will remain married and trapped with Robin for most of this story, even when we're not talking about her. She's always there. There's no way to know how much of Robin's crimes Rosemary knew about or she was exposed to. But I'm sure that this whole experience was incredibly traumatic to her and the children. So while he kept Rosemary trapped, Robin felt unsatisfied. He felt like he needed more. So he starts cheating on his wife. It was very obvious. Like, he didn't go through the hoops to try and hide it. He didn't have a burner phone, a second account. He would straight up bring girlfriends to his house to cheat on his wife with. One neighbor said, Guy's strange, I tell you. I just remember, he always had young girls coming over. And I'm not saying young, like, ooh, 21. I'm talking 15. And you didn't hear it from me. But sometimes, the 15-year-old would stay all night. Allegedly, Robin raped this 15-year-old girl in his own daughter's bed. So yeah, he was a pedophile, he wanted to find young girls with developed breasts, and he would force them into the same sadistic practices that he forced his wife into. So he would insert pins and needles into their breasts while he assaulted them. He would cut them with knives. One of the victims said, 
He kept begging me to cut off my own nipple for him, just nonstop begging me to do it. Obviously, I said no, and he was upset, and he kept telling me, well, if you don't do it, I can find someone else who will, as if he's, like, threatening to leave her. And throughout all of this, Robin is working for PDM contractors under John Wayne Gacy, the clown killer. So is it a coincidence that both boss and employee go home to wreak havoc on other people's lives, and they can't stop thinking about torture and pain and murder? I don't know. When I was in high school, I had this ritual every day after coming home from school. I would grab a salty snack, sit down, watch my favorite mystery drama on TV. And recently I discovered the adult version of that, which at the end of the workday, I grab salt and vinegar chips, snuggle up on the couch, and I play June's Journey. June's Journey is a hidden objects mystery game that makes me feel like I'm living inside of a mystery TV show that is very immersive. You play as Detective June Parker, and you just found out that your sister and husband were murdered. The This is a fictional story. So you fly from London to New York to investigate, but the clues are just not adding up. So you get to go through these series of scenes from the mansion living room to a lavish garden to a 1920s style New York cafe. In each room, you have to find hidden objects that help you solve the mystery of your sister's death. And in the meantime, a whole lot of unexpected, just scandalous twists are going to happen. There's family secrets, danger, there's romance. I love traveling all over the world with June. Currently, I'm exploring Paris in the 1920s because the game is set in the 1920s it just has the most aesthetic game design ever and it's so cozy whenever i need a break from the suspense i can pause the story and head over to my private island yeah they give you a private island and you get to customize it however you want for you i love cottage core mixed with that old money vibe with a huge mansion and a luxurious garden and even like this train rail june's journey is the best way to unwind at the end of a long day or just to take a break in the middle of the day when i feel overwhelmed i can escape all of my problems and turn into detective june discover your inner detective when you download june's journey for free today on ios and android so they don't know each other are killers well there is a theory and it's far-fetched so hear me out Two Chicago-based attorneys voluntarily spent six months re-examining John Wayne Gacy's case in 2012. And they said, and I quote, There is significant evidence out there that suggests that not only did John Wayne Gacy not operate alone, but he may have not been involved in some of the murders. Meaning whoever he was working with killed without John Wayne Gacy. And one of John Wayne Gacy's victims remembers another man in the room during his assault. And when John Wayne Gacy was arrested, one of his first questions was, have my associates been arrested? He claimed two to three of his PDM contractor employees were accomplices of his. So three employees do get arrested and none of them were Robin. But the speculation here is that Robin was an accomplice of John Wayne Gacy because, again, what are the odds? But Robin will deny it. Probably till the day he dies. He denies ever working for John Wayne Gacy. He's like, nope, never did that. He said there's no connection, no association. But you'll soon see that Robin denies everything, literally everything. So it's up in the air. But at the end of the day, though, the two would have very different victim profiles. Even though both of them were sadistic serial killers, John liked young boys and Robin liked large breasts. I think this case is frustrating because even though the serial killers were caught, there's so much that's not known. There's not much known about Robin, about if he did in fact work with John Wayne Gacy, if they were in fact accomplices. But if there were someone, if there were a group of people to know the most out of everyone, it was the rest of the Chicago Ripper crew. Because one thing we do know is that Robin didn't want to kill alone. 
Maybe he couldn't do it alone. Maybe he needed others to rile him up and tell him how amazing he was and how he could do it. You can do it. Or maybe he felt like he couldn't control the situation by himself. Maybe having other people around made him more confident, more cocky. Maybe he wanted everyone else to do the dirty work so he could sit back and relax, enjoy himself. Maybe having accomplices made him feel like it was a satanic ritual and a sacrifice rather than just a gruesome, senseless murder. Regardless, Robin would have three accomplices, and they weren't friends that he already had. They weren't, you know, people that he was dating, which is interesting because it's usually like that. He was basically recruiting fellow serial killers, which I think is so rare in cases like this because, you, you know, we have the cousin duos, the, the hillside stranglers. We have the relationship duos where they start dating and they start killing together. We have the friends who kill. But then this is, he's just looking for strangers. He basically recruited fellow serial killers by posting want ads for his new construction contracting business. Inspired by John Wayne Gacy? Maybe. He would recruit new hires and interview them to see which ones were a good fit for his company and, you know, for murder. Which, can you imagine what the interviews are like? Because Robin was into breasts and that was the only requirement for his victims, was that they had to have large breasts. So is he sitting there like, are you a boob guy? And if you're not, it's like, oh, sorry, you don't have what this company is looking for? I mean... What kind of interviews are these? So eventually, he puts together a band of killers that we know as the Chicago Ripper crew. Robin was the oldest. He was 28 at the time. Then we have Edward Spritzer, who was 19, Thomas Cocorellis, who was 19, and his brother, Andrew, who was 17 at the time. So let's talk about Edward first. Edward was born to a teen mom. Um, she was only 16 when she gave birth to Edward, and it was tough. You know, her husband was in the picture, but she just wasn't really ready for this stage of her life yet. I mean, is anyone really ready for motherhood? She tried her best. She wanted to raise Edward Wright. Even later, when he was showing signs of developing mentally, um, not on the same timeline as what is considered normal, Edward's mom was patient. Everyone in the family described Edward of being this gentle, compassionate kid, that he just wanted his dad's attention. He would never really get it, though. Just felt like Edward was really shy even with his own parents. At school, he had a hard time making friends. He was withdrawn. And if the teacher didn't step in, Edward was the type of kid to get bullied ruthlessly. Like he could not stand up for himself as a kid. He would sneak out of class and go help the janitor sweep the floors instead. So he was a bit of an interesting child. Things didn't get better as he got older. They got worse. His grades were terrible. Like the kids skip class a lot. His mom gets remarried. He doesn't get along with his stepdad. Edward felt like he was always trying to do what's right. But why does he end up ruining everything? That was his outlook on life. So as a teenager, he runs away to live at a motel. And he's trying to hype himself up, like to start a new life. I don't need my parents. I'm street smart. I can make a living without school. I got this. And one of Edward's very few friends tried to help him. And they said... You know, Edward, if you want to make some real money anytime soon, you got to learn a trade, something that they can't take away from you. You got to add some skills to the table. So Edward starts, you know, helping out at a scrap iron business. Then he's like, OK, that's too rough. He works at a Burger King and later at a donut shop. And that is where he got to know a regular donut eater, Robin. Over donuts and coffee, the two started to get to know each other and a friendship of sorts developed. Hell, Robin even offered Edward a job. He said, f*** this donut shop. What are you going to do? Smell like donuts all day for the rest of your freaking life? No, you need to come with me. and I'm going to teach you everything you need to know on how to run a successful business. Are you in or what, Edward? Edward nodded. He's like, yeah, I'm in. He's not in the dark. There were some weird rumors. 
First, there was the connection with the known serial killer, you know? Yeah, people knew that Robin used to work for a convicted John Wayne Gacy, the clown killer, who has now been arrested. Then there were the rumors about the dog. He had sex with the dog. There were whispers about how he abuses his wife. Edward had a vague idea that Robin was not the most moral person in the donut shop, but he was charming. He was intelligent. And Edward was like, if I can be half the man that Robin is, I'm going to make some money. So off they went. And at their first idea of work, it was to get into Robin's car and I quote, pick up some whores. Later, Edward said that during these drives, Robin kept talking to him about how they were going to pick up a sex worker that they liked. Well, one that Robin liked. And there wasn't much criteria. She just had to have really large breasts. They were going to take the sex worker into the van, threaten her, take her to the woods, assault her, torture her, cut off her boobs, and then kill her. Or as Robin would say, and I quote, take care of the whore. I'm not sure what my reaction would be if I heard these words in person, if someone suggested this to me. But I assumed that I would be scream crying and throwing myself out of a moving vehicle. But Edward was just like, okay, this is my life now. I mean, I'm sure there was a part of him that wanted this for himself because he went along with it. There was no hesitation. There was no questioning, nothing. Edward would say, no, it's because I felt like I owed Robin. That's what the two brothers would say too, Thomas and Andrew Cocorelli's. They said, no, we owed it to him. We just wanted to get along with whatever he was saying. Because Robin had given these three guys a job and he gave them friendship and mentorship and sometimes he would even offer up his own house if these guys were in need. Which Thomas and Andrew Cocorelli's were desperately in need. They had very similar upbringings to Edward and the, all of them just bonded over their shared experiences. Which, side note, a bit fascinating, but all three of them, Edward, Thomas, and Andrew, would score surprisingly close in IQ tests later, 75 and 74 whereas the national average is 98. So the two brothers, they were often over at Robin's house helping take care of Robin's children. They really looked up for Robin. They thought this was a great chance to work for paint as painters for Robin's company. And just like that, the Chicago Ripper crew had been assembled and they are being compared to a small cult, a small cult that is responsible for the lives of at least 17 people. I mean, I can say that I agree with the sentiment to a degree. Robin really fits the cult leader profile. He's really good at picking out vulnerable people. He, he's this master manipulator, smooth talker. He's going to promise you sunshine and rainbows and offer you support and then convince people to do the most heinous things in return, like eat a breast. Yeah, consume human flesh off a dead woman's body. But they never really had a plan. There was no big picture like a lot of cults. There was no, oh, this is the manifesto. This is what we believe in, right? They just, they just cruised around the streets of Chicago in an old red van and Robin would be glued to all the passing figures, he was looking for a victim. And all that mattered, again, was that they had large breasts because he wanted to take them home. The breast, not the person. As they cruised around that night, May 23rd, they spotted a 26-year-old woman named Linda Sutton. She was a mother of two that was minding her own business when the Ripper crew ambushed her, jumped her straight up, screeched to a stop next to her on the sidewalks, dragged her into the van, handcuffed her with her hands behind her back. They drove to the wooded area nearby and they would perform the most depraved sexual torture imaginable. They took turns raping her. Edward said that Robin was like the puppet master. He was the one telling him how to rape her, who was next. He was the one calling the shots. But I mean, okay, fine. But Edward, you still did what you did. And like Robin didn't make you do any of that. Edward said, no, Robin was getting off on the control. He loved the control over the whole situation, over Linda, the victim, over the other members of the crew, over deciding what gets done next, what kind of pain is inflicted next. 
So the crew, they raped, sodomized, and repeatedly cut and stabbed Linda with a knife. Robin was particularly focused on Linda's breast. Edward would later say that Linda kept asking Robin, what are you doing? And more heartbreakingly, why are you doing this? But Robin never responded. Instead, he stared at the hole in Linda's body because he had sliced off her entire left breast. And then he proceeded to have sex with the gaping wound where Linda's left breast once used to be. He was assaulting her open wound. And the whole time, her amputated breast was laying on the ground next to them. According to Edward, Robin even bragged about how they can all take turns having sex with the amputated breasts later. And after they were done, Robin and the crew left Linda for dead in the woods. Edward said he remembered getting back into the old red van, looking back and seeing Linda lying there, alive but practically dead, with her hands still handcuffed behind her back. A few days later, a housekeeper working for a local motel nearby started complaining to her boss. She's like, boss, we got to do something. There's a terrible smell coming from the wooded area nearby. And every day it's getting stronger and stronger and worse. You know, I I think maybe an animal died in there. Maybe like a deer. That's my best guess. But the smell is pungent. Anytime I leave the rooms, I have to hold my nose because it's like wafting and through the air. We got to do something. Even the guests are starting to complain. So the manager went out to the woods to see if he could find the source of the smell. He was expecting a deer or some sort of animal. But instead he would find... Linda's badly decomposed remains. He freaked out. He stumbled out of the woods, called the police, and they quickly searched the area. But there were still more questions than there were answers. The police saw that Linda had been gagged with a piece of cloth in her mouth. She's wearing a sweater, but it was pulled over her shoulders. She had a gaping wound. I mean, some part of her remains were skeletal. She had her underwear and pants on, but they were pulled down to her thighs. She was wearing socks, and inside of them was rolled up cash. So they ruled out robbery, but what was the reason? Just sexual assault? I mean, this isn't an ordinary sexual assault murder case that they're dealing with. Her breasts had been amputated. I mean, who does this? This is really sick and sadistic. So they try to get a time of death. And because of all the cuts all over her body and the gaping hole in her chest, Linda's body decomposed really fast since it was pretty much welcoming um, flesh-eating parasites into her body. So it accelerated the decomp. Now, the police ran a search of missing persons reports. None came back matching her description. But one officer was like, we got to look into sex workers. Because rolled up cash in your sock is usually a tradition of sex workers to keep their money safe for the day. And that's how they were able to find that the body belonged to Linda Sutton. The police did have a, a puzzling question, though, that they, we would never get the answer for. Linda Sutton was said to have been missing for 10 days before she was found. But she had only been dead in the woods for three days. So either she just decided to go off the radar and then was kidnapped and tortured by the Chicago Ripper crew, or maybe the police theory is that the killer or killers, this didn't happen in the span of one night. Mm, Yeah, wow. Maybe the torture lasted the course of a few days. The police thought that they were looking for one killer, one sadistic killer. But in reality, they were looking for four. The four of them standing in Robin's attic. Robin pulled out Linda's amputated breast and started chanting something loudly. And the others said that they didn't think it was anything specific, just spooky chants. I think this confirms the theory that he just wanted to act like it was a big picture satanic sacrifice when really it's just a senseless murder. So he stood there chanting with an amputated breast in his hand. Then he looked around, opened his mouth and shoved Linda's breast into his mouth and proceeded to eat part of the raw breast. 
The four of them took turns biting it and passing it around. They were taking turns eating the remains of someone that they had just kidnapped, tortured, and killed. Listen, I feel physically ill just thinking about it. And for the next year, it was radio silence from the Chicago Ripper crew. Maybe the thrill of the first kill satisfied Robin for that long, or maybe he was just being cautious since it was his first time, and he wanted to see how the police would handle the case. Which, side note, the police weren't handling the case. I mean, they had no idea where to start. They claimed because that Linda was a sex worker, there was no way to trace her movements leading up to the murder. They're like, we don't know who she was talking to. She talks to strangers on a daily basis. And with no other sex workers really wanting to help the police because, you know, tensions are high. Police were never good to sex workers. They were rude. Some of them were considered the enemy. I mean, it was tough. So nothing. They had nothing. Nothing at all. No leads, no clues, nothing. They didn't even know it was multiple killers. Edward would say, no, the lull in the killings was actually because I was avoiding Robin. I wanted nothing to do with the kills. Robin kept calling me and seeing if I wanted to drive around, but I was shutting him down and I was so stressed. I even reached out to my family and Edward would tell his parents, you know, my boss is weird. He, he pressures me into doing things that I don't really feel comfortable with that weren't really part of my, my whole thing, my whole job description. But they encouraged him to stay because they had no idea the truth. They thought, okay, Edward, you know, you're just young right now, but that's how life is. Work is about toughing it through the tough parts. You got this. Then, when the first case was becoming cold, there was another victim, which many of the victims in this case are unidentified because like a lot of serial killers, the crew targeted sex workers. They felt like law enforcement didn't care as much for sex workers. It was harder to trace their steps. And because they interact with a lot of strangers, it was easier to get them into the car. They also picked up an unidentified hitchhiker on the highway. Edward said that Robin was offering the woman pills to take and she took them and suddenly became spacey. Robin drove to an isolated cemetery, parked the van, murdered her. Edward claims he stayed in the car on this occasion. So there's a lot of claims. Okay, Edward is really making out to be like, oh, Robin's this big bad wolf and I was just staying in the car the whole time. Just take everything with a grain of salt, I guess. Then there was another victim that was unidentified, then another and another. And Edward said it was like clockwork now. Robin seemed to have his method down. It was a routine. He would offer the woman some sort of pills to take most likely sedatives, then Robin would restrain them, take them to an isolated area, a nearby forest, perhaps. Then he would assault, torture, rape, amputate their breasts, and then assault the gaping wounds on their chest. Edward said there was no stopping Robin at this point. The guy was obsessed with his severed breast collection. That was his most prized thing in life, including his own children. He made this altar in his attic, a satanic altar with all the breasts lined up in this box. Sometimes the four men would just take turns masturbating onto the severed breast. Most of the time, when they added a new breast to their collection, they would consume bits of the flesh, literally cannibalism, as some sort of team-bonding ritual tradition that they were trying to create. Thomas said he remembered at the height there were more than 15 breasts in the box. And I know what you're thinking, okay? It really does seem like a cult, right? The cult leader and his followers. Well, the followers started acting on their own as well. Listen, they're all horrible people that deserve to be in prison for the rest of their lives. That's all I can say. Sources on this part differ, but it seems to be that the two brothers and Edward decided to go, quote, hunting for a victim without Robin. And they stumbled upon a woman named Lorraine Borowski. And she was a 21-year-old realtor who was on her way to work. It's like 7 a.m. She's literally at the door of her Remax realtor office. She's about to unlock it. She's opening, trying to get the key in. And she's seen by the Chicago Ripper crew. They park the van, run up to her, and snatch her. 
a huge struggle ensues. I mean, Lorraine is kicking off her shoes. She's trying to fight them off. She's throwing her purse at them. All the contents in her purse are going flying in front of the realtor office door. Which, by the way, her co-workers later get to work that day and they realize all of Lorraine's makeup, her stuff, lying on the ground. It was terrifying because when you see something like that, you know something bad happened, Mm -hmm. something really bad. They called the police and they too believed Lorraine had just been snatched off the street while she was about to go to work, literally right before she was about to go to work. But her body wouldn't be found for another five months. Her decomposing body was later found in a quiet cemetery. She was raped, tortured, her breasts severed and murdered with a hatchet. Her cause of death was multiple wounds to her chest, but um, the police did note that someone had taken an ice pick and stabbed it all over Lorraine's body. But that didn't really help the police catch the killer. I mean, just like Linda's case and all the other victims, the police had no idea that these were all connected. I mean, they had a vague understanding, but they weren't they weren't officially saying anything. They had no idea that they were dealing with more than one killer. They just knew that they had no leads at all, like none at all. And it was all going to get worse. Lorraine's murder seemed to be a turning point for the crew. The three followers went from being just mere passive followers who were pretending, well, I wouldn't call them passive followers, but they were pretending to be passive in the whole thing, to now full-blown participants who were excited for the crimes. So from then on, instead of having months as cool-off periods between kills, they would go at max like two weeks, sometimes same day. And just two weeks after Lorraine's murder, they would strike again. It was around 2 a.m., Andrew, Edward, and Robin were driving around when they spotted a woman alone on the street. Her name was Shui Mack. She was alone, and apparently Shui and her brother were in the car going home from the family restaurant where they work. So it's like 2 a.m., they get into this huge argument on the way home, and the brother pulls over, and Shui's like, I want to get out of the car. Now, the brother said he would normally never let something like this happen because it's the middle of the night, but all their family was coming home from the restaurant shift. So he was expecting that their parents were in the car behind them. They would see that they pulled over and then Shui would just get in their car and then they would all drive home, right? Mm -hmm. But Shui's family never saw her on the highway that night. Instead, Shui was approached by Robin in his red old van and Robin and his nice looking friends offered Shui a ride, you know, because it's dangerous out here all alone at 2 a.m. Some sources say that Shui was hesitant and the crew grabbed her into the van. Some say that Shui was trusting and got into the car regardless. She ends up in the front of the car and, well, you know where this goes. Later that night, Shrey's brother would search all night for his sister. He drove up and down the highway, hoping for any sight of her. He found none. Listen, if you have a sibling, I can't even imagine the feeling of knowing something might have happened and the last conversation that you had with them was a fight. Just the emotions that I would carry with me for the rest of my life, I, I can't even imagine. The police didn't find her body for another four months. And when they found her, she was buried at a construction site. And they said, and I quote, her body was cut into ribbons. There were lacerations all over her body. Her arm was completely broken. She had two broken ribs. She had her breast amputated. And that part seemed to have been assaulted. Edward said that Robin cut wounds all over Shui's chest and had sex with all those other cuts as well. And when they were done, they just left. A couple of things to note about this case that are bonkers to me is that Robin still had a family and a job throughout all of this. And the Ripper crew, they didn't have a lair or like a secret location where they would bring the victims. I mean, they just abducted people off the street in plain view, and then they would take them to a secondary location to live out the most atrocious torture. Sometimes they would just assault and kill a victim inside of Robin's old red van. 
they had removed the door handles from inside so that the victims couldn't escape. And it's like the crew had a kill kit in the van at all times. Because a lot of the victims, they were tortured with various different objects. Knives, razors, can openers, needles, hatchets, baseball bats, ice picks, a piano wire. So (sighs) piano wire is incredibly strong. It has to be able to withstand the pressure from piano strings. And because of its design of being made from tempered high carbon uh, steel, it's incredibly durable, incredibly sharp. It has a lot of other real life applications like being used in surgeries or even to cut giant blocks of like hard shell cheese. Do you know what I'm talking about? Well, Robin started, this was his favorite method. He started wrapping it around a victim's breast and pulling it tighter and tighter until the flesh tore off the victim. All the victims were alive while this happened. And then Robin would have sex with the open wound on the victim's chest while they were still alive. The other crew members would masturbate over the severed breast while Robin would assault her wounds. And he clearly thrived off seeing his victims in pain. Like he wanted them alive for their torture. He wanted them to understand that they were at his mercy and that they would die the worst possible deaths. Having that level of control and power, it it aroused him probably as much as the axe itself. Robin was one of the worst, most despicable kinds of killers out there. Then the crew would leave the victim for dead. They would take her amputated breast back to Robin's attic and add it to their satanic altar, but not before they consumed a piece of the flesh, like a cannibalistic ritual. Well, I guess not like, it literally was a cannibalistic ritual. And the victim's bodies, they were popping up all over Chicago, the outskirts of Chicago, in fields, forests, under bridges, in the river. The police were stumped. They knew now that they were dealing with a serial killer, but they had no idea, again, that it was a whole crew of them. Until Angel York. Remember Angel York? Angel was a sex worker that was abducted on the side of the road. She did enter the van voluntarily, but believing it was another client, but the minute that she got into the van, she knew it wasn't going to be good. And for hours, she was raped, stabbed, cut into, and then Robin told her, I'm going to let you live if you cut off your own breast. They duct taped it back on. They threw her out into the dumpsters, thinking she would die. But she wouldn't. She would survive. She would make it to the hospital and she would work with the police as best as possible to give them as much information on the four guys, the four serial killers that were now at large. But the problem was, even with Angel's diligent descriptions, the police had no actual men to connect them to. And for two months, nothing. Silence. Quiet. Maybe the Ripper crew knew that Angel survived and they were playing it safe. Until they weren't, Robin was itching to get back out there. He was being, he was getting addicted to these kills. So they went out driving and I wish I could be like, you know, the whole town was on edge and they kind of were. Okay, so side note, the police for the longest time did not publicly address that there was a serial killer at large. They claimed it was because, you know, John Wayne Gacy had just been arrested a few years ago. We didn't want another serial killer news to send the whole town into a frenzy. We wanted to be absolutely sure that we were dealing with a a serial killer. But I think that's bullshit. I think it's better to be safe than sorry. I think they should have let women sex workers know that they need to be extra careful because someone is out there hunting them. It honestly felt like the police were embarrassed. They had been under a lot of pressure and scrutiny on how and why John Wayne Gacy got away with how much he got away with for as long as he did. So now they felt like we got to keep it hush hush. So nobody thinks we're incompetent. We have to get ahead of the story. We got to arrest the killers and be like, hey, guys, look what we did. We saved you guys. But eventually, even the police were forced to come clean to the public. Because Angel York had survived. And it seemed that if the police didn't warn the public, maybe Angel would have. So now the town is feeling the terror. And the Rippers don't strike for two months. They were probably nervous, wanted the community panic to die down a bit. But after those short months, they were back in full swing. 
They kidnapped 18-year-old Sandra Delaware, tied her wrists with shoelaces, raped and tortured her. Edward said Robin forced Sandra to perform oral sex on Edward, and then he asked him, Are you enjoying yourself, Edward? He said no. And Robin encouraged him, If you're not enjoying yourself, you gotta take it out on her. So he stabbed her twice in the chest. Robin shoved a rock in her mouth to keep her from screaming and amputated her breast with piano wire. At some point, he even assaulted her with a broken wine bottle. Then he strangled her with her own bra. Her dead body was dumped in the Chicago riverbed. A few weeks later, Rose Buck Davis, a 31-year-old marketing executive, was kidnapped. They pulled her into the back of the van, just grabbed her from the street, took her to a secluded lake, raped her, cut her chest with an axe, and then amputated her breast with piano wire. Edward said that he tied a stocking around her neck and strangled her, and then the rippers crushed her face with a hatchet. She had been sodomized to the point where her anal cavity was bleeding. Her stomach was stabbed over and over again. There was a four-inch piece of wood that was later removed from her vagina, so the rippers liked to assault their victims with objects as well, including broken wine bottles, pieces of wood, Coca-Cola bottles. Which, side note, Edward told the police, Oh God, when I strangled her, I felt so sick afterwards I wanted to throw up. I don't believe it for a second, because Edward would later run into an old friend of his, and she was teasing him about being a little softy and not a macho guy, and he said, yeah, well, you better watch out, because I've already killed a couple of bitches. Cut their tits right off. Very messy stuff. She obviously thought it was strange, and she obviously thought it was a joke, until she later read what happened on the news. Which there are, again, so many victims that are still not identified to this day. A 35-year-old waitress who ran into car trouble, snatched off the road. Another unidentified Hispanic woman wearing an engagement ring, who was found dead. Unidentified. Um, Her breasts were not amputated, but they were very, very badly bitten. And the killers masturbated over her body. The Rippers were suspected in the disappearances of at least 17 women in Illinois in the span of like two and a half years. I mean, we'll never really know how many victims there were because sometimes during Edward's confession, he mentions victims that the police didn't know about, bodies that were never found. But thankfully, it's all coming to an end. By October of that year, Robin is getting a bit restless. With more bodies popping up all over Chicago, it was hard to find a new victim. The streets of Chicago seemed dead. No women were out walking. Nobody was leaving the house alone. Nobody's staying out when the sun goes down. And it seemed like Robin just needed another kill. He was literally heading into bloodthirsty territory. It didn't even have to be his usual method. His reasoning was he just wanted blood. Like it was this suffocating urge. He became so overcome with the need that he didn't even care who his victim was. Which is why October 6th, Robin was in the car with the crew and they weren't having any luck finding a victim. Robin sees two guys at a phone booth, 28-year-old Rafael Tirado and his friend 18-year-old Alberto Rosario. Which, I mean, this is not even close to his usual victim. But Robin tells Edward to stop the car, gets the gun from the back of the van, and opens fire on the two guys at the phone booth. Alberto ran and managed to survive, but Raphael was shot and he would succumb to his injuries at the hospital. It was the Ripper's crew first and only male victim. And it was weird. Robin was so bloodthirsty that he, he strayed completely from his MO completely. Not only did he select a male victim, but he also chose a gun, which is not personal. And Robin is a sadist. He wants the pain to be lingering. He wants it to last as long as possible. It didn't make sense for him to use a gun. Robin didn't use the victims as sexual objects or for his rituals, but maybe he thought that it would get him some release. He was wrong. It didn't. In fact, he just needed more. He made him more frustrated. So the van kept going until they finally found another victim, 20-year-old Beverly Washington. 
She was a sex worker. Robin lured her into the van, pretending to be a potential customer. And Beverly said her gut feeling was telling her not to get into the van. But Robin was offering her more than her usual rate. She needed the money and she got in. And immediately, Robin flashes his gun and orders her to take off her clothes. He handcuffs her in the back of the van, forces her to perform oral sex on him, swallow a bunch of pills, and she fell unconscious as she noticed Robin was tying a wire around her breast. And everything went black. He amputated her breast and then had sex with her open wound. He put the wire around her right breast and he nearly amputated it, but I guess in the last second he decided not to. And he threw her out of the van into a nearby just isolated area. He left her for dead. But like Angel, Beverly would survive. A bystander found her near the railroad tracks, drenched in blood, mutilated, barely alive. The driver immediately called 911 and miraculously, Beverly made it to the hospital. She was in critical condition, but she was conscious and she was alive. And she was really injured. She was so shocked that she couldn't speak, so traumatized she couldn't talk. She wanted to get the guys that did this to her though, so that they would never do this to another woman. Which side note, I feel so bad for all the victims, the families of the victims, but I feel an extra special of pain for Angel and Beverly. They survived this traumatic experience that is so, so unique in the sense that the torture that they endured, I mean, how many people out there can relate to them and how many people can support them and really understand how to help them? Not only that, but they have these medical bills, these financial pressures, but they'll also never be able to work in their field ever again. They've been mutilated, but also how do you go back into sex work after something like this happened? The trauma, the paranoia, the fear, the PTSD, the flashbacks. So not only do they lose their mental health, their physical health, their emotional health, but they lose their livelihood for the time being. They're racked with medical bills and it just, it's so sick and twisted because it feels like they're being punished for surviving. Beverly couldn't speak. She was in so much shock. So the police asked her questions and she would blink for yes and blink twice for no and she would write down words or phrases on pieces of paper. Beverly remembered the van in which she was tortured. She wrote that there was a plywood partition between the front and the back. It had this blue and white feather decoration hanging from the rearview mirror. And these small little oddities of the van was exactly what the police needed. They put a bolo out, be on the lookout for this van, and immediately it was found on the road. They pulled it over and arrested the driver, Edward. I feel like they could have... Done that a million years ago. Yeah. And it's like an old red van. Like, it's a very unique van. Edward was taken in, questioned for hours, and he was hysterical. He tried to argue, I'm not the owner of the van. I'm just running errands for my boss who owns the van. I'm not the owner. Talk to the owner. So Edward leads the police to Robin. And what do you know? Robin matches the exact description that Beverly gave of Robin. So they bring Robin into the station, and now Edward and Robin are separated, and the police decide to turn up the heat on Edward. Why? Because Edward's the weak link. Robin was confident, cocky. He was cooperative, but not helpful. He was calm. He denied everything. In fact, he seemed puzzled. Like, why are you guys even asking me about these cases? I know nothing. The police really had no evidence on the guy. So eventually they did let Robin go. But with Edward, they were getting somewhere with brute fear. They were able to extract a confession from Edward that led to the arrest of not just Robin, but also the Cocorelli's brothers. Edward's police confession was a 78-page explosive bomb. Edward went to all the gory details, which, side note, he would constantly tell the police he hates blood and violence, which, like, okay, nobody believes you. Ed even confessed to murders that the police hadn't known about. Edward complained that they had killed another woman, but instead of leaving her body to be found, they chained her, they chained her up to bowling balls and threw her into the river. 
Andrew also confessed and claimed that he was influenced and manipulated by Robin, that he would have never done this by himself if it weren't for Robin. So they bring in the whole crew and arrest them. Thomas ends up confessing and said that he was only present for about three of the rapes and murders and that he was often at the Satanic Chapel, which is just the attic, hanging out with the crew, but he, he wasn't really part of it. When the police asked Thomas, why did you participate in these rituals? Like, why did you participate in cannibalism? He just very seriously said, you just have to do it. You have to. You know, Robin has the power to make someone do whatever you want. And he has this connection to a higher power that made me feel like if I don't do what he says, something bad's going to happen. So with all these confessions, these damning confessions, the police thought they had Robin. But Robin lawyered up and refused to cooperate. I mean, the guy was as cool as a cucumber. The officers are thinking, okay, he wants to play ball. Let's turn up the heat. They literally paraded Edward in front of Robin to show Robin to his face. Look, your buddy's on our side now. He's ratting you out and we'll probably give him a deal. That was the goal. That was the plan, but it had the opposite effect. Instead of scaring Robin, seeing Robin scared Edward just by seeing Robin's face. They didn't even exchange words. Edward changed his mind, recanted his confession and said that Robin wasn't the one in charge. No, it was, it was Andrew Cocorellis that was the mastermind. It was a shit show. The police had a lot of victims that they believed to be victims of the Chicago Ripper crew, but they didn't really have much evidence on Robin himself, which they knew was, you know, the leader of this all. The prosecution's case heavily relied on, well, primarily relied on the three testimonies from the other three of the Ripper crew. But they all admitted to being high or drunk during the crimes. They all had IQ results that placed them at the borderline impaired level of intelligence. And they constantly changed their confession multiple times. Andrew retracted his statement on four separate occasions. He claimed the police had threatened him to, into confessing and that they spoon-fed him what to say. I mean, it was a lot. The only other evidence that they really had was that Beverly was able to pick up Robin in a police lineup. But that was it. The prosecutors were stressed. They needed more. So they start reaching out to the community members that knew Robin. And they were shocked to see how many women came forward to say that he was aggressive sexually and he would constantly try to mutilate their breasts. They said that they had been abused. Robin claimed that he had supernatural powers. One of the women even warned the prosecutors, never look Robin in the eye. Don't do it. So yeah, the pre-trials and the trials were a complete mess. Robin even tried to plead not guilty by reason of insanity at one point, but even the jailhouse psychiatrists were not having it. They were like, yeah, no, you're fine. I mean, the most frustrating thing is that the prosecutors don't even really try to get full justice. The Rippers were suspected in 17 disappearances, but they would only be charged for a handful. Robin himself would never even be charged of a single murder. He was charged with the attempted murder of Beverly Washington, aggravated kidnapping, deviant sexual assault, and rape. Now, thankfully, the judge had a lot of leeway when it came to sentencing, and he was sentenced to 120 years in prison. The judge told Robin, only a devil would do these things. An animal would not do these things. Only a monster. A monster would. And right now, Robin is serving his sentence, but he will be eligible for parole in 2042, and he'll be 88 years old. So yeah, one day Robin might be back on the streets, which is infuriating and it's terrifying. And to this day, Robin claims he's innocent of the murders. He said all he did was rape Beverly. That's it. In fact, he's begging authorities to use DNA technology to prove that he's not a killer for the other murders. He said he was framed. He said that the fact that the police don't want to test his DNA for the murders is evidence in and of itself. Why wouldn't they want to test it? Because they want to keep an innocent man locked up behind bars. That's why. He said, I not only face injustices, but the nightmares that follow it. You have no idea the pain and hurt that I face and feel every single day. I sit here and I lose hope. I'm not an angel, but I never intentionally hurt anyone unless it was to protect myself or my family. I could never live with killing or knowing I was responsible for taking someone's life. 
the audacity. As for the other three of the Ripper crew, Edward pled guilty to the murders of Shuey Mack, Rose Beck Davis, Sandra Delaware, and Rafael Toredo, as well as the attempted murder of Beverly Washington. He did this thinking he was going to avoid the death penalty. But people were disappointed, so the prosecutors tried Edward for the murder of Linda Sutton. Edward's attorney's whole defense was basically, oh my god, it wasn't him. He was peer pressured by Robin. You know, Edward is immature, impulsive, simplistic. He's an idiot. He's dumb. He just wants to, you know, please others. Being desperate isn't a crime, right? Edward tried to claim that though he did nothing to stop the murders, he felt super guilty about it. The jury did not believe that. Edward was found guilty and sentenced to death, but he would not be executed. He'll be sitting on death row when Governor Ryan commuted everyone's death row sentences to life in prison. But Andrew Cocorellis was not so lucky. In court, the prosecutors sought out the death penalty for Andrew, which the defense attorneys tried to argue that he was a good person and a great candidate for rehabilitation. But the jury didn't think so. They found him guilty and sentenced him to death. Andrew would actually be the last person to be um, executed on death row in Illinois before the death, uh, death penalty was kind of gone. His last meal was just water. He refused to drink. And before he was executed, he said to uh, Lorraine's family, I'm truly sorry for your loss. I mean this sincerely. And he cited the Bible. He said, repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was 35 years old. As for Andrew's brother, Thomas, he took a plea deal and he was only sentenced to 70 years in prison, but he was paroled recently in 2019 after serving only half his sentence. So this guy is free. He's about 60 years old now and uh, just out and about, which you're like, okay, well, maybe he rehabilitated, right? The prosecutor said this during his original trial, eight people, I won't say it again, eight people viciously and randomly selected lives of their own, walking down their street, plucked away from their families, never to be seen again. Jail is fine. Thomas watches TV. Thomas reads a magazine. Thomas gets the run of the place. He likes jail. Jail is okay with him. Do you think Lorraine Borowski would like to watch TV today? Do you think Shay Mack would like to read a few magazines today? Do you think their mothers would like to talk to them on the phone today? They had a right to their lives. And Thomas gave them the death sentence every time he went out with his buddies. There is debate on whether Thomas was really involved in many of the crimes. Some think that he just hung around the crew a lot and maybe he knew that they were doing something but never actively participated and got swept up in it because he was trying to help his brother out. But I don't know. I mean, I think they're all guilty. The parole board obviously let Thomas go thinking he wasn't dangerous, but it's unclear where Thomas is now. And the parole board pretty much said this. Listen, Thomas isn't who we're worried about getting out. It's Robin. Robin is a whole different thing. He makes Charles Manson look like a Boy Scout. And he's up for parole in 2042. <sighs> Listen, this whole case makes me feel injustice Andrew was executed, his brother is now walking free, Edward is probably in prison reading magazines, and the ringleader is in prison looking forward to parole. Make it make sense. It doesn't. But that is the story of the highly requested Chicago Ripper crew. They're so vile. And the fact that four serial killers, who, yeah, I mean, I get it, they probably wouldn't have killed on their own, but these four strangers get together and just wreak havoc and take so many lives, I think that's insane. I mean... I feel like there's ways for us to think about, oh, okay, well, this couple was dating and they, they started killing and then we can kind of see how this these cousins did this. and the, But this is it's ridiculous. Yeah. Please stay safe out there. And I will see you guys on Wednesday for the main episode. Bye.